This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. Methodists in Colorado will soon have a new and somewhat controversial bishop. Karen Oliveto is the newest head of the Mountain Sky area of the United Methodist Church. She is also the first openly gay bishop in the 7 million member denomination. But Methodist tenants state that homosexuality is, quote, incompatible with Christian teachings. Reverend Oliveto joins us from her home in San Francisco, where she's literally waiting for the movers to bring her things to Colorado. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Good to be here, Nathan. You begin your role here in September. What are your thoughts about starting this new chapter and moving to Colorado? Uh, I'm very excited about coming to Colorado. The folks I've met there so far, the welcome I've received, the kind of exciting ministry that's already taking place there, it's a very exciting step that I'm taking and looking forward to it. And how do you uh, picture connecting with the people here, uh, getting to know them? Have have you been to this area before? Uh, I've I've been for visits. I've been to Rocky Mountain National Park and other parks in the region. Um, But this is going to be a different kind of uh, relationship building. One of the things I've asked uh, the folks I work with, I've said, I want to go to the margins first. I want to go to the people that are often overlooked. I want to go to the communities that people often forget about. And I want to, I want to get to know people where they are, where they live, where they worship. Uh, and, and that's the way I want to start my ministry there. Go, go to the margins. Explains that a bit more. You mean getting out of a church? Is that what you're saying? Well, getting getting out of my off, my my bishop's office uh, and and going into the communities where United Methodist churches are, uh, but but often you know we have we have communities that uh, and people and geographic locations that that we often overlook, and I want to make sure that those are some of the first people I reach out to. I want to build relationships with people across Colorado and across the entire Mountain Sky region. Um, I want. To, I want to get to know them. I want to get to know their hurts, their longings, their dreams for their world, their relationship with Christ. And and that's where I want to start ministry. Which it sounds like means getting out of that church setting for, for, for some of these things. I've also read that there are some Methodist churches that are meeting in pubs. Isn't that amazing? That's what I love about Colorado. There's a spirit of entrepreneurship that, that I think the church needs right now. So I, I'm so excited. After hours, can't wait to visit. I have to note, you're on a, a telephone app that may uh, be, have a bit of a delay here, so I apologize for that. We're working on that. Uh, the Mountain Sky area covers four western states and part of the fifth. Will it be hard to become the resident bishop over such an expansive area? Well, I'm going to do the best I can to make sure people in all the corners of that region know I'm their bishop, and I'm committed to meeting them where they are. What else about this area appeals to you? Is it uh, when you had a thought of going to certain parts of the country, did this place uh, speak to you in some way? You know, I'm 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 kind of a bi-coastal gal. You know, I grew up on in New York and, and uh, spent spent uh, growing up and part of my vocation there. And then since 1989, I've been in San Francisco. So to 
to kind of move inland is, is a new thing, but, but I'm really struck by the beauty of that region. I love being outside. I love hiking. Uh, you know, the, the natural world is really important to me and protecting the natural world is important to me. So I think, I think it's going to be a great fit. Earlier this month, Reverend Cynthia Meyer, a pastor in Kansas, took an involuntary leave from her role. Essentially, she's out of her job because she told parishioners she's a lesbian. The United Methodist Church says that homosexuality is, quote, incompatible with Christian teachings. Why, knowing that, did you run for this position? I ran because God called me to run. and Or to uh, not run, because that turns it into a political uh, a political process, but God called me to allow my name to be lifted up to be a bishop for this time in the United Methodist Church. I, I It was a time of great discernment for me. Uh, I love the United Methodist Church. I don't want to harm the United Methodist Church. I don't want to be harmed. I don't want my relationship to be harmed. And so for a long time, I resisted that call but in May, when we had our general conference meeting, when we decided we were going to talk differently around human sexuality, um, I, I just realized that maybe who I am could be a gift to the church at this time, so that uh, we're not talking about people as issues, but uh, as those who are in the room and in the conversation. Not only that, I've, I, I have a great vision for the church. I, I mean, I have a—I think it's great, but I have—I have a vision for the church that that I. I think we need to be more than we are in the 21st century. I, need to, I think we need to be rooted in our communities in ways that we're not. And we need to be sharing good news. And so when I thought about my gifts and graces and um, my, my vision for the church, and, and it is wrapped in who I am. So uh, when I finally said yes, I finally said yes the night before the Pulse nightclub shooting. And so I woke up the next morning and when that shooting happened, it just confirmed that, yeah, this it's time for my voice to come, come uh, forward more. And so you were holding back uh, before, and this is really what, what, what set you on this path to where you are now. But the president of the U.S. Right. Methodist Council of Bishops says your election raises, quote, significant concerns and questions of church polity and unity. What are your thoughts on this? I think that the debate around human sexuality, and let's face it, it's not around human sexuality, it's around the, the role of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex folks. Uh, it, it, it's about our lives. And, it, it, and it's really a cultural and theological divide that's happening. The United Methodist Church, especially in the United States, is not of one mind on this issue. And to think we have finished and settled and decided how we're going to move forward on this forever is is a mistake. In fact, there are faithful people on both sides. And God keeps calling LGBTQI people into ordained ministry in the United Methodist Church. Boards of ordained ministry recognize the gifts and graces of these folks. And frankly, the church needs LGBTQI folks in order to be fully the body of Christ. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with the Reverend Karen Oliveto. She's the newest resident bishop for the Mountain Sky area of the United Methodist Church, which includes Colorado. She's also the first openly gay bishop in the 7 million member church. 
going back to what you said, do you believe there is a split possibly coming between one realm of thought and another realm of thought? And is that concerning to you? Um, I would hope there's not a split coming. Because if we can't witness to the world what it means to live into full diversity, if we can't show the world how to do that, then is the church living up to what it's supposed to be? What hope is there for the world if the church can't show? So I hope there's not a split. I was really disheartened at General Conference when I heard um, members of committees I was on say, I can't be in a church with openly LGBTQI people. And that stunned me. I want to be in a church where people don't think like me, where people don't, um, don't have the same political views, social views. That tension is where God resides, and that's where we're all brought to a deeper truth. And so I hope we can show the world, you know what, we don't agree on everything, but here's what we do agree. We are going to love boldly with the love of Christ, and we are going to be agents of transformation in our communities. So that's what I'm hoping for. And general counsel is, is essentially where all of this is decided on a national level. Is that correct? Right. Every, well, in a, in a global, global. global level. We're a global denomination. So, yeah, every four years we, we remake our rules. So nothing is in stone, really. We say we agree this is how we're going to live into the next four years, but four years it could all change again. So what has the reaction been uh, with other church officials across the country? It sounds like they've been pretty split evenly, in a sense. Well, I'll tell you my personal experience. I have received hundreds of emails, hundreds of letters, hundreds of lots of phone calls, all saying, oh my gosh, this is the most exciting thing that's happened in the church in a long time. I have hope for the church again. I've been healed because of your election and, and then I hear this outpouring of stories that what a privilege it is to hold those stories and receive them. Out of that, I've received seven letters of people who are angry about my election. That's a record low for me. Let me tell you, I've been controversial before. That's a record low. So I'm wondering, you know, are the people in the pews really at a different point than our polity right now? And how do you move forward with that, with the fact that the, the, the leadership may be in a different position than the rest of the congregation on the church level? You know, I th- again, I think we need to be present to each other. We need to be honest before each other and commit to doing the hard work of, of engaging in relationship. When that happens, we're all changed. We're all changed. And I'm willing to do that hard work, and I invite others to do it with me. But some may say the hard work is, is, is the other way, in a sense, that this is not something the church should be moving towards. If, 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 so the question becomes, how do we live into it? How do we live into it if we both understand faithfulness? And I think we can do it. And, and I hope others join me in that task. How important, of course, is faith through all of this? You're leading uh, uh, quite a few members. There are 400 churches, uh, United Methodist churches, in this uh, region. Do you expect church tenants to change? Is that something you're hoping for? I'm just hoping that we are able to be the best disciples of Jesus Christ we can be. I'm hoping that we can help people encounter God walk more faithfully as disciples, engage each other as brothers and sisters, and then transform our communities in ways that show justice, compassion, and love.
that's what I'm hoping for. So what is the procedure from this point? It seems there's still uncertainty about how you'll move forward into this role. Well, September 1st, I start, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of processes in place. And, you know, Nathan, I can't tell you, this has been... I mean, I get paid to talk about God, right? I get paid to, you know, to, to, to sink into spiritual things. I have never, in all my years of ministry felt the presence of God, felt the movement of the Holy Spirit as I have in the last couple of months through all of this. And I think the people who elected me would tell you the same thing. When we gathered in Scottsdale to, to discern who our next bishop would be, there was such prayerful discussion, inward searching, considering what the church needs. And, and uh, I, I just got to trust God as we move forward. Briefly, if something changes and you're not uh, a bishop of this area, what happens then? Do you reset? Where do you move from here? Um, I, I, I can't even go there at this point. Mm. I, mm. I just am taking 100% of all of who I am, all of my energies, to coming to the Mountain Sky area, to loving people as fully as I can, and to helping people engage as disciples more faithfully in that region. So that, I can't even go to, 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 to the other possibilities. It wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair to, to the people I'm coming to serve. And what about the Council of Bishops? Do, do they feel the same way, do you think? Do you think you have the full support of, of them? I, I have received a lot of notes and emails from many of them welcoming me. Um, and so I am, I am going to receive that welcome uh, and, and embrace it. Reverend, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I look forward to being out there with you all real soon. Reverend Karen Olivetto joined us from her home in San Francisco. She will soon move to Colorado to become the resident bishop for the Mountain Sky area of the United Methodist Church. Her first sermon is scheduled for September 11th at the Park Hill Methodist Church in Denver. Still to come, car thefts are once again on the rise in Colorado. But is it just because more people are moving here? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The number of car thefts in Colorado jumped 30 percent last year, and this year is on track to be the same or even worse. Denver police officer Raquel Lopez says puffers are part of the problem. So people leaving their vehicles running when it's cold out, sometimes even in the summer that tends to happen where people will run in for a quick second and then they come out and their car stolen. But the bigger issue is how criminal activity could be possibly changing. That's according to Carol Walker, executive director of the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association. She also serves on the board of the Colorado Auto Theft Prevention Authority. Carol, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nathan. Why this almost 30 percent increase in car thefts in 2015? It is a very concerning trend, and the Auto Theft Prevention Authority is tracking those trends. And unfortunately, and I think we see this in headlines that you report almost on a weekly basis, that we're seeing a big escalation in the violence associated with car theft. That stolen vehicle is so often the getaway car. And as Colorado grows and we see big city problems, we're seeing an increase in crimes across the board, everything from homicides to drug-related crimes, and auto theft is a piece of that. So this 30% spike is concerning. And then for six months of this year, we're already 1,500 motor vehicle thefts up. So uh, a lot of different trends behind that, but a big piece of it is the concern of auto theft being a piece of 
other violent crimes that we're seeing in Colorado, unfortunately, and not just in the Denver metro area, although that is the number one spot, hot spot for us. We're also seeing it in southern Colorado and even in the western slope. And these stats come from the state's Auto Theft Intelligence Coordination Center. And I'm not sure how many of these thieves are, are, are caught, but do you know who's responsible for the increase in car thefts? You know, who's responsible for the increase in car thefts? Really, yeah. I mean, it's car thieves themselves, but right. unfortunately, um, also the public is, I think, lax. We think of it as a property crime, a victimless crime, and that's really not the case. And we're making it easy for them, easy prey. You just had a, a spot on the puffer cars, people leaving their car running unattended. Um, they're out there with the thieves are telling us looking for that easy steal. Your car unlocked. You've left uh, that car left running unattended. You're parking in not a well-lit area. You're leaving valuables in the car. So we really are making ourselves easy prey for this increased criminal activity. Is there something more organized, gang activity as well? Could that be also an increase uh, that could be causing some of these thefts? Yeah, the Auto Theft Intelligence Coordination Center has also seen that trend where we're seeing more organized auto theft crime. And the Auto Theft Prevention Authority really is putting more resources to that. We actually fund through a dollar that everyone pays on their car insurance policy. It's required by state statute. It goes to that granting authority for the Auto Theft Prevention Authority. And that money goes to these multi-jurisdictional task forces which include Denver PD, Aurora, Lakewood, Colorado Springs, Pueblo. They're all working together and sharing intelligence and really trying to get after these rings that are working. Um, We know it's a moving crime, so they're often targeting them. They may be targeting them for parts. They may be targeting certain types of vehicles that they can sell on, you know, then the black market. Then we're also seeing that uh, they're involved with these drug-related crimes. Some of the thieves are actually stealing the crimes or stealing the cars and then selling them off to these rings And then they are just taking them for drug money. So unfortunately, there's a lot of violent crime associated with an organized activity. And so stealing of these cars is just a part of a a bigger issue. Is that what you're saying? It really is. Um, As I said, stealing that vehicle, sometimes they're going after just the vehicle. Sometimes, though, they're stealing that vehicle, especially the easy steal to go commit another crime. Um, You're not going to drive your own car when you're going to rob a bank. (laughs) You're not going to drive your own car maybe when you're part of a meth ring. We're seeing that these stolen vehicles are part of those rings, whether uh, they're a big group of drug dealers. They're also then taking these cars and then even have chop shops that are involved with that where they're part of that organized ring. So really these multi-jurisdictional task forces, they're not seeing these kids are out joyriding, stealing the car to go do that. They really are seeing them as part of organized criminal activity. And these chop shops, they, they strip the cars and sell the parts and things. As well. Yeah. They'll, they can steal a car in seconds, um, especially, you know, our most stolen vehicles in Colorado consistently are the older model Hondas, Accords, Honda Civics, um, Honda even Accords, the Jeep Cherokees, Jeep Cherokees, because they're easy to steal. And these gangs actually know that. They know how to steal them. They know how to steal them quickly. And then they do just strip them for parts as well. Is it the the older models then? So what about the newer models, the the 2016s, 15s, 14s? Would they also be prone to being stolen by, you know, simply smashing a window and getting in there? Absolutely. They're just as easy to steal. I think we have a false sense of security depending on where we live in Colorado or the type of car we drive, even if we lock it every single time. But these cars are easy to steal. And sometimes they're cruising through what we would consider a nicer neighborhood looking for a higher-end car, or especially if it's a puffer vehicle, somebody's left it running in the driveway. So uh, we actually have on our website, lockdownyourcar.org, 
um, a hotspot map that the Auto Theft Intelligence Coordination Center populates, and you can put in your zip code and find out what hotspot you're living in. So yes, there are areas where you are more at risk. There are vehicles that are more at risk. Unfortunately, some of these Honda owners see them stolen time after time again. If you own one of those vehicles, make sure you're taking every precaution, locking it every time. But don't get on a false sense of security if you're driving a Cadillac Escalade or another vehicle, because we are seeing those cars stolen as well, those cars targeted as well. I want to go back to the, the puffer thing. Is that a really a big deal? I mean, we hear every winter that the police are saying, don't do that. But is it still a concern? It really is. And, uh, you know, a puffer car, that was actually a term that was coined by the gangs that were out there because they would mm. just go on a cold morning looking for that telltale puff, and they know that that car is left running unattended. So it's easy for them to steal on a cold winter morning especially, but even in the summertime when we leave them running for air conditioning or we're just running in, grab a quick cup of coffee. We see so many people get their cars stolen just because they think it'll never happen to me. I'll leave it running for a few minutes. I can't resist that temptation, especially on a cold morning. But it really is an issue, especially with Coloradans Against Auto Theft, which is funded by the authority. That's our statewide prevention effort, which includes law enforcement, insurance. What we're really trying to do is engage the public. Um, That's why we have the website, the hotspot map. We have task forces that are handing out flyers, bilingual flyers. And then we also have radio and TV spots. Simply just reminding, don't be a puffer, don't have a puffer car, and then just lock it or lose it. You're gonna if you don't lock that car, you've made yourself an easy steal for one of these thieves. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, speaking to Carol Walker, the executive director of the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association. We're talking about the fact that the number of car thefts in Colorado jumped 30 percent last year and is on track to be the same or worse this year. You mentioned a little bit about the urban part, the rural part. Are, are there areas of the state that are more prone than, than others, or is this an equal situation? Well, certainly in our urban corridor is where we always see the most car thefts, the most car break-ins. You have these gangs actively working the metro area. That's why we have a task force just dedicated to the metro area that includes, you know, Denver PD, Aurora, Lakewood, some of these spots that um, do see this heightened crime. But as I said, it's a moving crime. So oftentimes if a car is stolen in Denver, especially if it's connected to one of these uh, groups that are working type of auto theft, it can end up then in Colorado Springs or Pueblo or even in northern Colorado. Um, We're also seeing, though, an increase, especially in southern Colorado. So our number one hotspot for auto theft is still Denver, Mm -hmm. but number two is Colorado Springs, three is Aurora, and then four is Pueblo. Pueblo. So, um, and so there is a huge concern in those areas as well. So don't have this sense of, I don't live in Denver, so it doesn't matter to me. And then um, certainly we still have a problem in northern Colorado and even the western slope. And we're also seeing cars dumped there as well. Is this happening nationally as well? Nationally, we're seeing auto theft come down somewhat. Um, It is more of a problem in certain areas. The western United States is always our top spot for auto theft. California has about five states on the top 10 list, um, or top cities on that uh, top 10 list for the state of uh, California. But um, Yes, there are areas where it is a bigger deal than others. Um, Unfortunately, in Colorado, consistently, auto theft has been a big problem. It's connected to other criminal activity. And then we're also seeing some of the crime move from California area into Colorado um, as we see our drug crimes especially increase. That is a big connection. What specifically is the state doing to, to, to stop this from happening? 
Well, that law that was passed a few years ago where that is that dollar that everyone pays on their car insurance policy that the insurance companies are required to collect, that really is making sure that law enforcement is working together. Um, when I started my job 18 years ago, um, when it came to auto theft, Aurora didn't necessarily talk to Denver, or didn't talk to Lakewood, especially about auto theft, or it was considered a property crime. So when you saw budgets cut in these police departments, the first thing to go was their property crimes unit or their auto Which theft included unit. The cars, the right. Car so this actually funds these multi-jurisdictional task forces, allows these officers to share information, um, track the trends through the Intelligence Coordination Center because you can't target the trends if you don't know what the trends are. So this is all the pieces of the puzzle. Law enforcement working together, law enforcement better trained, sharing information, tracking the trends. And then you have the Coloradans Against Auto Theft with the prevention effort, making the public aware of their role in this and aware that auto theft is a problem and a big problem and unfortunately a growing problem. If you didn't have the efforts of the Auto Theft Prevention Authority, uh, you wouldn't have any finger on that, you know, spout where we're seeing uh, auto theft increase. So um, without these efforts, you really wouldn't have law enforcement efforts, training or prevention education efforts dedicated to auto theft. Carol, thanks for being here. Thank you. We appreciate it. Carol Walker is executive director of the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association. She also serves on the board of the Colorado Auto Theft Prevention Authority. We, we talked about the recent spike in car thefts. Up next, we explore the formation and growth of the 211 crew. Some believe it had a hand in the murder of Tom Clements, the state's prison chief, three years ago. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Was a white supremacist prison gang responsible for the death of Colorado's prison chief three years ago? El Paso County Sheriff Bill Elders says there's no evidence. He said several times that he wants to close the case on Tom Clement's murder. Others insist the killer, who was a member of the 211 crew, didn't act alone. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with UCLA's Georgia Leap in March. She's an anthropologist and policy advisor to Los Angeles on gang violence. She has extensive knowledge of prison gangs, including the 211 crew. Georgia, welcome to the program. Thank you. What are the origins of the 211 crew in particular? Well, there is sort of a founding story about the 211 crew that in 1995, Benjamin Davis was uh, being detained in Colorado, in Denver County Jail. And there he was assaulted and beaten by a large group of black inmates, um, supposedly, allegedly with a sock full of soap bars. And he was beaten so badly that his jaw was broken. And he sort of assembled a group of white inmates for protection and spread the rumor that they were an actual prison gang when they were not. They were a a small clique or a small group. And eventually the rumor became reality when more and more white inmates came to Benjamin Davis and said, hey, we want the protection. We want to join up. And this grew into what is now known as the 211 crew. You mentioned that that had its roots in a jail as opposed to a prison. So let's be clear that those uh, environments, jails, um, are, I suppose, just as ripe for this as prisons themselves. Well, I would actually say that jails are much more ripe for this in the short run. County jails traditionally are much more violent, much more unstable atmosphere where inmates do seek protection. Uh, And then once gangs or crews are organized, they do 
sort of spread to or consolidate within state prison systems. I know that's been very much the case in California, although prison gangs themselves become consolidated and almost corporate in the prison setting. Almost corporate? What do you mean by that? They're highly organized. Um, I originally have started spending had started spending a lot of time with street gangs which are often, you know, disorganized crime. But once inside the confines of prison walls, let's be honest, there's a lot of time and a lot of ability to organize. I don't want to say effectively, but well. And so these gangs have to be operating within prison walls, able to exist within prison regulations while knowing how to circumvent them, and also able ultimately to communicate with individuals on the outside. We'll talk more about that, uh, the role of a prison gang outside of a prison or a jail, for that matter, in a bit. But a, a little more about the 211 crew. What does the name come from, 211? The name comes from California Penal Code uh, 211, which is for robbery. And I found it kind of strange that they use the California Penal Code, but let's be blunt, there's a romance about California and its gangs and its prison gangs as well. So that's what 211 comes from. And, you know, in a lot of correspondence, they used California Penal Code numbers as a means to communicate. So they would refer to 187, which is California Penal Code for murder as well. But that is where the numbers came from. Based on the story of the founding of the 211 crew, it sounds like some, perhaps all, prison gangs have a racial element to them. Is that true? Absolutely, yes, although there's some wiggle room on this. But they absolutely have a racial element and in particular uh, Latino and Mexican gangs sort of started this and they are incredibly well organized inside of prison walls. Um, African-American gangs – report different degrees of organization. In the California state prisons, they're often not as well organized as the Mexican and Latino gangs. But in other state prisons, they are extremely well organized. Um, But you will find that prison gangs break down very clearly along racial lines and also involve a lot of racial hatred. And the 211 crew remains a white gang. In fact, I, I think even white supremacist, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes. They do claim an association with the Aryan Brotherhood, and it they self-identify as a white supremacist gang. To its founder, once again, uh, Benjamin Davis, um, is he still around? What's his story? Yes, and he has a very tragic story. Um, and please don't think I'm saying this as a bleeding heart liberal. I'm saying it more as a scientist. Um, he was literally raised in a Petri dish to grow up to be a criminal. His father had been incarcerated. There was physical brutality. He was in the juvenile justice system. And this is a man that's now serving, I believe, 106 years. I can't be precise, but just an insurmountable number of years in prison. He will be in prison for the rest of his life. And I think he's in isolation. Yes, he is in isolation or solitary confinement or whatever you might consider it. Um, I know lifers who refer to that as the other death penalty. And this leads us to the question of how sealed an environment a prison or a jail is. Um, To what extent does a prison gang 
in what we imagine is a very fortified environment, uh, able to communicate with the outside and perhaps, in the case of Colorado's prison's chief, to organize an outside action, perhaps a killing. And again, that's speculation at this point. Correct. This, These are all allegations, and I do want to offer that caveat. But I must say, prison walls are remarkably porous, no matter how high the security, no matter even if we are talking about a supermax institution. And this gives cold comfort to the public, but I think we have to be very, very honest about this. Communication does travel both ways. Drugs travel into prison. Any and all form of orders for hits can be made from prison that can occur on the street. And sometimes, sadly, it's found that prison guards aid and abet these kinds of communications. I'm I'm also very well aware that on a weekly basis, um, calls are made from contraband cell phones that prisoners acquire within prison walls. So it's really quite extraordinary. I, For example, um, I know several individuals who are inmates on death row who obtained cell phones while they were on death row. Now, they were eventually found to have the cell phones and they were put into solitary confinement. But what I can tell you is they got those cell phones in their hands on death row in a high-security prison in the state of California. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with anthropologist at UCLA, Georgia Leap. She's author as well of Jumped In, What Gangs Taught Me About Violence, Drugs, Love, and Redemption. She is a policy advisor on the issue of gang violence in and outside of prisons, we should say, to the city of Los Angeles. And we're speaking with her at about the three-year anniversary mark of the murder of Colorado's prison's chief, at the hands of a man who was a member of a prison gang, the 211 crew. And there is some frustration among former officials in El Paso County, where the murder took place, uh, that more members of the 211 crew have not been implicated in the killing. I think what uh, you described for us at the beginning was that prison gangs serve a need for inmates, uh, the need for protection in the case of Benjamin Davis, who founded the 211 crew after an assault. Is that the extent of what prison gangs do for its members? No, I think there's much more. I think that there's kind of a nuance in terms of the needs that they serve. There is a need for association. There is a need for kind of what are called cellies or or associates or people that you feel bonded with within the prison walls. Um, these individuals also do receive contraband. They receive drugs. They receive cell phones. They receive food. They receive any and all sorts of things within the prison walls. And, you know, prison is a desperately, desperately unhappy and uncomfortable place. Their rehabilitation does not go on inside of prison walls. And this is I'm using this word advisedly. This is the kind they also supply the sort of recreational activities, and that's a strange way to put it, but that prisoners often need. So it's protection, it's association, drugs, communication, you name it, they offer it there behind the prison walls. I mean, saying rehabilitation is not going on behind prison walls, that's painting with a rather broad brush, isn't it? I think corrections officials in this state would disagree. 
Yes, and I do have to also say one of the tragedies with Mr. Clements was that he was a very progressive leader who did believe that there needed to be rehabilitation, that both the physical and mental health needs of prisoners needed to be attended to. Colorado and Missouri, I might add, where interestingly enough Mr. Clements came from, those are two states that have an enviable record in trying to institute some rehabilitative practices. I'm sad to say that California is attempting to at this point, but we have also in the past sadly lagged behind. And I think that's why I make – I have that kind of emphatic uh, attitude about it. I still think that we are woefully falling short of any kind of rehabilitation in a systematic way in our United States prison system in, in the different states. Given the communication that you said could occur – uh, between an inmate who is in prison and others on the outside, um, is it logical, is it plausible to you that a hit, a, m- a murder, could be orchestrated from members of a gang on the inside uh, with perhaps former members on the outside? Absolutely, yes. In fact, there are extensive accounts of this going on in California with the Mexican mafia. There's a an excellent book, The Black Hand by Chris Blatchford, that details how hits were ordered from inside prison walls on uh, individuals on the outside. And certainly the Mexican mafia and other uh, Mexican gangs have had that reach in the state of California. Um, and it's also – that's what I'm the most familiar with, but it's also been documented in other places. So it's not only plausible, it has occurred. Do women join gangs? Yes, they do. Uh, In fact, that's going to be the subject of my next book. Women traditionally have not been seen as gang members, but their numbers and their profile in terms of gang membership is rapidly increasing. Um, And they take very active roles. They're often shooters. They're often soldiers. And interestingly, there's a subset of gang members who are lesbians, who are women, who gang members, despite homophobia surrounding gay men, um, Many gangs are willing to accept lesbians as very active members as well as um, straight females. So the composition gender-wise of gangs is changing as is the prison population of gang-associated women. Hmm. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. And as I said, it is very sad what happened to Mr. Clements. I still think of this. It was a tragic occurrence. Georgia Leap, anthropologist at UCLA. She spoke with Ryan Warner in March about the 211 crew, a prison gang some officials believe was responsible for murdering Colorado's former corrections chief. The El Paso County Sheriff says it may close its investigation, lacking evidence the gang directed the killing. The state's long-fought debate over hydraulic fracturing could find a home on the November ballot. Groups promoting local control over oil and gas development submitted two petitions for ballot initiatives last week. Signatures need to be verified. But as CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood explains, the oil and gas industry is already gearing up for a fight. It was a nail-biter at the Colorado Secretary of State's office. Proponents delivered boxes of petitions minutes before the Monday deadline. Recent attempts to diffuse tension between homeowners and the oil and gas industry have gone nowhere. 
The Colorado Supreme Court struck down communities' efforts to ban fracking. A 2015 task force with representatives from the oil industry and environmental groups produced results that disappointed both sides. Lauren Petrie is Rocky Mountain Region Director with Food and Water Watch, which supports the two initiatives. She was there to deliver the petitions. The ultimate goal here is to restore rights back to our communities to be able to protect ourselves, our home values, our families, our health uh, from the dangers that are inherent with fracking. The initiatives seek to limit energy development in different ways. Ballot Measure 75 would give local communities more say over oil and gas projects and the ability to ban them. Ballot Measure 78 would impose a 2,500-foot buffer zone between oil rigs and homes, schools, and other buildings. Right now, that zone is 500 feet. Most people that I talked to said these are absolutely common sense, and I can't believe we're fighting for this right. The ballot measures are controversial, and they've created something of a David versus Goliath fight. Environmental groups have raised a total of $550,000 to try and get the initiatives on the ballot. Meantime, a group representing the oil and gas industry has amassed nearly $17 million to stop them. The threat of these ballot initiatives warrants that type of response. Karen Crummy is with Protect Colorado, a group formed to oppose the measures. She says if passed, one or both of the initiatives would be a huge blow to the industry. A recent state study estimated the proposed 2,500-foot setback could affect 90 percent of land currently available for future energy development statewide. One of the major concerns, though, for both initiatives is that it would allow government to take private property without compensating owners. In Colorado, mineral rights are considered property rights. State law allows owners to extract resources. Protect Colorado wants to defend that right and has poured millions into advertising against both ballot measures that would restrict oil development. It's also behind another campaign called Decline to Sign, encouraging people to not sign ballot issues. I think there's concern in the state that it, it it's pretty easy to get something on a ballot. I don't think that most people object to that. But what we're trying to tell people is that your signature is actually worth something. Some environmental groups are stepping into the fight. The Colorado Sierra Club contributed $150,000 because director Jim Alexi says it matters to his membership. There's a real opportunity here for us to, you know, face the industry, to face Goliath and to organize and band together to do something that's going to protect the health and safety of communities. The big question now is whether the petitions will have enough signatures. Organizers say they handed in more than the required 100000 for each ballot measure, but they declined to share any more details. The Colorado Secretary of State has up to 30 days to verify the petitions. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. You can find all of our environment reporting, including our continuing coverage of climate change in Colorado, at cprnews.org. Just ahead, a Denver startup has reinvented the fitted bedsheet using zippers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Ever struggled to put a fitted sheet on a bed? One Denver entrepreneur thinks she has the answer, fitted sheets that zip up. Elizabeth Sofer believes it'll be the next big thing, and she could be right. Her Denver-based company QuickZip recently won $250,000 at the Capital Championships in L.A. It's nationwide competition for entrepreneurs. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So describe what these QuickZip zippered sheets are. Sure. The uh, QuickZip is a uh, patented two-piece fitted sheet. There's a base that stays on the mattress and the uh, zipper sheet that you zip on and off. It's the top panel where you sleep. 
So you've kind of done away with the elastic bands in a sense that you would wrap around a bed. Well, that part stays on your mattress. So that or that piece with all the elastic just stays put. And then all you do is zip on and off the f- rectangular panel. So it's easier to wash and fold. And uh, also the base is really sturdy so it doesn't pop off your bed, which is another big complaint on uh, fitted sheets. So the challenge of, of putting on a fitted sheet seems pretty first world problem, to be <laughs> honest. But, but why are zipper sheets the answer to this? Well, you know what? It started with a crib sheet. Um, crib sheets are a pain to change. For babies, parents, yep. Right? Sorry, yep. Uh, baby crib. The parents have very little time. You're changing sheets often. Um, and so the first one was invented when we realized I in- realized I had to take the whole mattress out to change the sheet. And then I kind of thought, well, why can't we just take off that top part, leave the mattress in, and change the part that they're actually sleeping on? So um, the more we uh, got it out to customers, the more they complained about other beds and wanted it for their parents, for their RVs, for their own beds. And hence, now we make them up through California king size. And we find there's an undercurrent of hatred toward the fitted sheet. (laughs) So so is the fit of your sheets different than the traditional fitted sheet? Um, Our base is more sturdy. I think it's got more elastic. There's elastic in the corners. And it fits a variety of mattress thicknesses. And people tell us it stays on the mattress way better than their normal sheets. How many prototypes did you have to go through until you settled on this final product? Well, um, a number. We, I think the first thing I tried to sew on, um, we then had a seamstress who lived across the street from me try to sew on. We're buying fabric at Denver Fabric or Joanne, trying to find suppliers. Uh, we found a cut and sew um, or a prototype produ- first person, the first. And then mm-hmm. we found a cut and sew person in Aurora who was sewing uniforms in her garage with 15 machines. And, and then eventually we did get to a manufactured um, product. However, even our first manufactured product was a big disaster. But we actually learned something from that and used that element in our uh, patent, actually. And other entrepreneurs believe in your idea. It seems you did win $250,000 in this competition. What are you going to do with the money? Well, the first thing is that the competition prize is money plus mentorship, which we are even more excited about. I think the cash is amazing, but we just started a six-month um, mentorship program with Blue Ocean Enterprise, which is Otterbox's oh, um, parent company. And, and they're the, the phone cases. Yep. Yeah? They're the sponsors of this competition. And so we are going to... Um, create, you know, stronger sales and marketing programs. We sort of have our manufacturing and our products are in pretty good shape. Our our marketing and sales and awareness is the areas where we can really, really make a difference uh, with this money. And your products, these, these zippered sheets are now on Amazon at some local and national stores as well. Uh, are you making money yet? You know what? We should be cash flow positive just about this fall. We are hoping to do that. How has not only the national entrepreneurial community, but the the local Colorado community helped you get to where you are in terms of this product to market? Well, the Denver and Boulder community is amazing. And we were really introduced to it last year. We did an accelerator called Merge Lane, Mm. which they started last year. We were in the first class, and it's an accelerator for women-led companies. Accelerator. Uh, That is a program. They actually – it's a fund of money. They invest in – in our case, eight companies. So uh-huh. that's their class. And then you go for a 12-week sort of boot camp. Um, and it's it comes from many tech startups go through these type of accelerator programs. Um, to get older, you to the product quicker, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And it's a little different with a consumer product. We can't sort of pivot as quickly as other people because we already had a warehouse full of product. And But the learning and the community and the networking created through that 
have been amazing. They actually posted something about this capital championship, which is how we ended up applying for it. Um, and they've been greatly supportive and we're still involved with that community. Um, and what do you tell other aspiring Colorado entrepreneurs who are, who are in your position, who are just starting or, or getting off the ground? You know, you just um, need to talk to as many people as you can. I mean, I came from, I have a geochemistry background. I was doing environmental work. I wanted to do this. Um, and so you need to talk to as many people as you can. You need to ask as many questions and um, just listen, but listen to your gut. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Elizabeth Sofer is founder and CEO of Denver-based QuickZip, which makes fitted sheets that zip. And that's our show for today. Uh, I'm Nathan Heffel. Our audio engineer is Malcolm Hughes. My director is Andrew Dukakis. Producers Anthony Cotton, Stephanie Wolf, and Michelle P. Fulcher. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.